Are the two covenants really all that different? Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. From time to time, the computer companies give us the opportunity to upgrade our operating system. The latest version will give you all these new capabilities, they promise, and everything will be faster and prettier and better. Yes, but will it be worth it? How many of my old programs will I have to update or abandon? Today, we'll get a point-by-point comparison of the old and new covenants for those who weren't sure which one they would like better. Here's Jim. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8. In January, I was studying and reading and asking God some questions about eschatology and, and coming to some refreshing insight into positions that I've held most of my life as to when things happen in the eschatological chart, when Jesus returns and the day of the Lord comes and the tribulation and the millennium and all those things. And, um, and I was asking the Lord if that was the theme that I should continue to pursue. I love that theme. I love to teach and preach it, and folks have an interest in end times events. And, uh, and it was like the Lord said, let me give you some fresh material, son. <laughs> And he led me very dramatically, led me to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, I discovered the most eschatological of all the books of the Bible. It is an incredible book of eschatology. And what it does is it takes the focus off when is Jesus coming to what's he doing now? Sometimes we get so caught up in the in the trends and changes and the problems and the wars and rumors of war and who the Antichrist is and the state of the nation, the nation of Israel, all those things are important and have their place. But we can lose balance. And the Spirit of God took me by the ears into the book of Hebrews and I haven't surfaced since. It has been a phenomenal personal experience for me. When we come to the eighth chapter, look with me please, we're going to break into a quotation from the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. God is speaking, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Listen, chapter 8 verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, with the house of Israel. God has future plans for the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, earlier in this same quotation, he says very specifically in verse 8, he said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Very specific. So God has not cast off the Jewish people. He will not void his promise to them. There's a day coming in the future when God is going to establish with the nation of Israel, as he did in the wilderness with Moses at Mount Sinai, back there, way back in the Old Testament, 1,500 years before Christ, back there he made a covenant with them. He has another covenant that he promises he's going to install. And he calls it a new covenant. New means that what he established back there has run its course. It's accomplished its purpose. And a new and better covenant 
or testament or will or contract. God has in mind and in store and has promised his people. Back to verse 10, Hebrews 8:10. This is the covenant that I will make for the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And here are three characteristics. You want to note them. Note this. This is the heart of the difference between the old and the new covenants. Number one, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Back in Sinai, tablets of stone. Back in Sinai, a tabernacle specially set apart for sacrifices and offerings and approaching God. But the new covenant won't function that way. In the new covenant, God will place his laws, his intentions, his will, his design, he'll place it in their hearts, inside them. Will that be effective? Well, notice as the verse goes on. Verse 11, each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This new covenant will function on the basis of internal transformation, not outward laws with penalties, but an inward transformation of the heart and spirit of each of the members of the house of Israel. And by the way, at that moment, all Israel will be saved. There won't be an unsaved, unbelieving Jewish person, by Jewish I mean descendant from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, won't be a single one of them on the earth who's not a believer, who hasn't been born of the Spirit of God as just was described, and who will not intuitively know God. That is, they will want to do the things that please God, and they will understand what those things are because the Spirit of God will not only write them in their hearts, but motivate them to do it. That is phenomenal. Incredible. Now, there's the third part. Notice it. He says, I will be merciful to their wrongdoing. I will never again remember their sin. That means that God is going to wipe the slate clean. Incredible. There is a huge, absolutely world-changing event that is just ahead of us. It's at least seven years away. We know that because the 70th week of Daniel has to play out first. And the period, the time of Jacob's troubles, we call it the tribulation period, that has to play out too. And the Antichrist has to come and God gives the devil his, his right to destroy himself and destroy the world. All of that has to play out first, granted. But it's coming, brothers and sisters. It's coming. And in the, in, in the dynamic of this new covenant, Jesus Christ will establish a government on earth 
with a throne, a human government system with his throne in Jerusalem, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and only believers will be in that kingdom. Now, I emphasize that because sometimes we think that we can bring that kingdom in today. And let me remind you, the new covenant works because it's internal first. It's not a repetition of the Ten Commandments. It's a transformation where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and the will of God and plants it in the hearts of these people. They are born again. As a result, they intuitively know God. They intuitively know what God wishes, what God wills, what pleases God, and they are inclined to choose that. Not just to believe it, but to behave it. And the backside of that is, God says, they will never have their past sins ever remembered against them again. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Now notice that last verse. And then we'll get to tonight's passage. It says, verse 13, by saying, a new covenant, he, God, declared that the first is old. What was the first covenant? Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, 633 laws, a whole government structure, a temple with priests, a tabernacle with sacrifices. That was the first covenant. When did God say, I will establish a new covenant? When was that? This is a quotation from the pen of Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived 600 years before Jesus was born. I can see the light coming on. This should not shock anybody who has any acquaintance with Scripture. This is not something God thought out when Jesus was hanging on the cross of Calvary. This is not one of these gotcha moments that came to God's mind when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This new covenant that God promised to replace the old one has been in God's mind since 600 B.C. And that old covenant with the tabernacle, animal sacrifices, priests, all of that, that has been fading, passing away. Now, there's a sense in which in 70 AD, so that's about 700 years after God promised this new covenant, in 70 AD, through the, the Roman soldiers, God, God, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, scattered the Jewish people, and made it impossible for them to practice the statutes of the first covenant. Do you see that? There has been an empty, a vacuum in the economy of God since 70 AD, but that was anticipated 600 years before by the promise and prophecy of Jeremiah. Incredible. 
So this is not new or novel. This has been anticipated and promised by God since 600 B.C. Now, the writer of Hebrews picks up that theme and wants us to understand the distinctions. He wants us to see the clear distinction between that which is passing away in many ways, in many senses, has passed away because you can't do sacrifices, you can't have festivals without the temple in Jerusalem. That's part of the internal strife right now in the land of Israel. The very, very religious and conservative Jews are saying, we've got to have access to that temple site because we can't do the Old Testament covenant without the temple. We can't do it without the priesthood. We can't do it without the sacrifices. And they're right. So Judaism today, since 70 AD, has been largely centered in rabbinical, teaching focused in, not the temple, focused in what? Tell me, where did the Jewish people meet every Friday night and Saturday? At the synagogue, at the synagogue. The synagogue is not the temple. There are no sacrifices at the synagogue. There are no priests at the synagogue. There is no effective atonement for sin at the synagogue. There is moral teaching. There is ethnic identity. There is preservation of history. And there is ongoing discussion about what the scriptures mean when they say thus and so, and ongoing discussion about how we as the remnant who have our ancestor going, ancestry going back to Abraham through Isaac, how should we behave out here among the Gentiles? That goes on in the synagogue. But that can't fill the bill. Fascinating. I can't tell whether you're challenging me or ready to push back or whether I'm about to be sacrificed myself here tonight. I, your, your responses are pretty... It's fascinating, isn't it? Now look at chapter 9. Now watch. It's already 20 to... That was my introduction. And there are seven points to tonight's message. Well, let's cover some of it. There'll always be another week. Look, now the first covenant, Sinai, also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. They had the tabernacle and they had the laws, the social laws, how to behave, what to do if people violated the laws. All of that was what made that covenant. And it had both regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. Now watch. For a temple, a tabernacle was set up, 
In the first room of that tabernacle, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies, two compartments. It, in the Holy of Holies, it contained the gold altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which there was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above it, above that ark. The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. There, you escaped. The writer realizes if he were going to unpack everything that these symbols represent, it would take another 10 chapters. So I'm going to follow his good example. But what was the purpose of this? Why did all of this need a new covenant, why did all that have to change? Why was that not effective? What was its purpose? Look at verse 6. These things having been set up this way, the priests entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. They trimmed the lamp. They put out fresh showbread. They brought in incense to burn on the altar of incense in front of that veil. The priests repeatedly performed their ministry in that first called the holy place. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and that only once a year. Only the high priest, only once a year, never without blood which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Verse 8. Mark this. Come back to it when you have a moment to reflect. The Holy Spirit was making it clear. Let me paraphrase that. The Holy Spirit had designed this building and the function of the priests both in the holy place and the holy of holies, the Holy Spirit in this whole design was seeking to make it clear that the way into the holy of holies had not yet been disclosed. You could say opened. The second, the holy of holies, that second part of the tabernacle was closed. Only the high priest, and he only once a year could go there. And yet it was in that compartment that God's manifest presence was demonstrated, sometimes in the Shekinah glory, always in the elements of the cherubim, the mercy seat, and the various the various pieces or the various articles that were contained 
in the Ark of the Covenant. You see that? What's the Holy Spirit teaching? Only the high priest goes back there. He only wants a year. The rest of you who are worshipers, you can't even come through or into the first part where only the priests were allowed. And none of the priests, except the high priest, could go into the second holy of holies, the very presence of God. So what's the Holy Spirit teaching by the list? He's teaching us that the access into the Holy of Holies was not yet disclosed or opened or available while the first tabernacle was still standing. Wow. While the tabernacle, which then morphed into the temple in Solomon's day, while that tabernacle temple system had been ordained by God, set up by God, and was diligently practiced according to the rules and regulations. While that was of God, it didn't provide access for the worshiper to actually come into the presence of God. The worshiper was still outside, outside the building. Even the priests were not allowed into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. When the high priest went in, he dare not go in without two blood offerings, one for his own sins and then one on behalf of the people. So this marvelous edifice and all of these functions of priests and sacrifices and all of these symbols of God's presence and God's yearning and longing to be in the midst of his people and to have his people in his presence, all of those things both illustrated God's desire to be with his people. It also illustrated you can't come to God, to his presence, through this system. Incredible. That's why it needed to be replaced. In the workplace, we know that rules can help shape performance if they're enforced. Now, if the owner's son were to come in and show us how the owner wanted things done, that would be better. But if he could somehow connect with our minds and hearts and not only show us the right way, but give us the ability to do things right, then the rules would be completely unnecessary. Jim's message is substance, not shadows, and we heard the first half today. If you'd like to have the talk on CD, we'll send that to you for a gift of $7 or more. The larger study is called God's Ultimatum, Volume 1. The 19 sermons are collected in a CD album, yours for a contribution of $66 or more. Ordering details coming up. But now, we're asking for a gift from some of you. If you would seek the Lord's guidance on this, you might be able to help us start the new year in solid financial shape, and that's important. Listener prayers and donations are the only means of support we have. God is the source and your channels of His grace, and so we thank Him and you. Mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085, USA. Call 1-800-984-2313. 
That's 800-984-2313. On the web, type in rightstartradio.org. You can donate securely there. Listen to radio shows, hear complete sermons, download the sermons, email us, even follow the link to sign up for the daily podcast. There are quite a few reasons to visit rightstartradio.org when your busy holiday schedule permits. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. The physical covenant and the spiritual covenant. Can we look at the difference that way? Let's think about it together on Thursday's Right Start. Right Start.